You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from today, the 16th of February, where we were live from the ARN Business Club at the Banyan Tree on Blue Waters Island. But we also had a close uh, eye on all of the, the breaking news stories, making headlines around the world. And our big focus was actually on scientists in the UAE because they appear to have achieved a reproductive breakthrough in their camel breeding program. Dr. Nabil Mansour from the Fajera Research Centre told us how they are creating ever faster racing camels. Meanwhile, as unrest on the border between Israel and Lebanon increases, we looked at the impact of the crisis on the tourism sector and also on foreign exchange funds. Plus, we've heard of quiet quitting. Well, now quiet hiring is all the rage. And for many of us, it's going to mean going back to school or at least learning new skills. HR expert Emily Rose McRae from Gartner explained all and we got a little bit of a local lens on the topic as well, courtesy of Zaid Al-Hayali, who's the co-founder of Mark Ellis Recruitment and Outsourcing. And meanwhile, as we all start to figure out how to use AI chatbots online, on the program today, we heard from a man who first experimented with them Four years ago, Jason Rohrer created characters for his project, which was called Project December, and people started using them to talk to lost relatives. We found out more on the show, and I have to say, it is a really fascinating interview. Plus, Untold Dubai kicks off this weekend. We found out who's going to be performing on stage and the best way to get to Expo City Dubai. We found out more with the organizer, Edi Chirigi. out that the sport of camel racing could be close to changing forever. That is after scientists in the UAE achieved something of a scientific breakthrough in their breeding program. They're basically using reproductive techniques like embryo transfer, IVF and cloning to breed some of the fastest camels in the world. And it's all taking place at the Fajera Research Center. They seem to have had a fair old amount of success because just recently, three particular camels competed in three-kilometer races at the Al-Mamoum Dubai racetrack. All of them won their respective competitions with times between 4.24 and 4.38 minutes. I mean, that is consistency. And and another camel also did really well and came uh, first in a two-kilometer race. And then you had another one coming second in an Omar Queen festival. So what are the breeding team at the Fajera Research Center doing to achieve such brilliant results? Well, let's find out. We're joined on the line now by Dr. Nabil Abdel Hamid Mansour. He is head of camel research at the Fajera Research Center. Uh, Dr. Mansour, thank you so much for joining us on the agenda this morning. Can you talk us through the different processes of the camel breeding program? Because I think that uh, for most of us, this is a brand new topic. Yeah. Uh, good morning for you and for all listeners, and uh, I am happy to be with you today. Uh, actually, we are, uh, since we started at Fujira Research Center since uh, three, four years, uh, we concentrating to improve the camel uh, racing uh, breeds here. Uh, 
in the beginning, uh, we don't have much breeding, uh, much racing camel uh, in Fujairah. So we concentrated to selecting uh, very good donors, which has a little bit experiences or uh, some few uh, competition succeeded in it. And we worked hard on these uh, females uh, by uh, making embryo transfer for them and meeting them and using semen from elite pools from uh, Dubai and Abu Dhabi. And by the time we got, this is the first hour production. As you said, we have finally, uh, during last month only, we have three or four uh, times we succeeded. This is the first patch of our work. We concentrated on embryo transfer, on IVF, and now we also we are doing cloning for the best camel. We are selecting the best racer according to the shape, performance, and the behavior also. And then we are working hard on this in breeding, and not only actually in breeding. We now have also program uh, to improve the nutrition and to uh, improve the training uh, method. All the training now, uh, which is doing in through UAE and Arabian Gulf, is just traditional. So we try uh, incorporation of new science, new methodologies, artificial intelligence. Uh, to improve the camel uh, performance and to reduce the stress on these camels. Also, we are doing some researches on the ruminal microbiota and uh, metaprolomics to improve the performance. And uh, we are expecting that within uh, f uh, four or five coming years, I hope we will be the leaders in camel race uh, throughout UAE. What are the attributes of a good racing camel? What are you looking for in your beasts? In, uh, in the beginning, we look for the performance and uh, also the shape of the camel. Uh, usually, we have uh, two breeds only for uh, suitable for camel racing, which is a local breed and the Sudanese and the hybrid between them. This is the, the camel racer. There is a lot of camel breeds, but most of these breeds are not suitable for camel racing. So first we look for the breed, we look for the uh, morphological appearance of the camel, and uh, then the performance. This is the beginning, the first criteria. Am I right in thinking that it's quite difficult to breed from camels because they have a very long gestation period? Yeah, they have almost three, uh, 13 months gestation period and they have reproductive season. So each female camel produce one baby every two years. This is normal. And this is why we are doing other reproductive technologies through embryo transfer and IVF. We can produce from only one donor, maybe 20 or 30 uh, baby per year. Because we use this donor only to collect oocytes or to collect embryos and put it in, a, in, other, uh, in another camels, normal camels, as a recipient. So we just take this donor only as a genetic uh, field to collect the genetic and to distribute the embryos to other normal camels. So we can increase the number as much as we want. 
and by this also embryo transfer we can uh, try several males not only one time because during the season I can also take semen from this male and this male and this male three four males with only one donor and just increase the chance to get champions does it appear to be a heritable trait so if you've got a daddy camel who is particularly fast does he tend to make baby camels that are also fast yeah yeah especially if you you can also improve this through the using selecting also a champion male and yeah. with the champion female the offspring will be more faster and this is why the racing camel is always going uh, up by time. It sounds like an incredibly, I mean, amazing scientific process and and extraordinary to be working in this field and to be making such progress. But it sounds very expensive as well. Is it worth it from a financial perspective for uh, the research centre, but also for camel owners, for example? Uh, actually, the camels, uh, the racing camel, are are very expensive. Uh, comparing to our techniques, uh, the camels are more expensive than uh, our reproductive techniques. And so, as you a know, consequence, uh, it's worth it. It's worth investing huge amounts of money in order to come up with these very fast camels. Yeah, especially especially in Arabian Gulf, it's also a big business. You know, it is uh, how much champion camels can be sold, maybe two, three, four million per one camel. And and once you have your, um, you know, genetically perfect racing camel, how much can you then add to its performance through food or nutrition or, or supplements, do you think? You know, the performance is not depending only on the genetics. Uh, in my opinion, this is only 50, 60 percent uh, genetics. And the remaining is depending on the training, training on the uh, feeding, on the program the animal put in and to reduce the stress. The camels are very sensitive animal. If you put it under stress or you fear the camel, it will not perform well. So it is uh, really a complicated process. It's not only depending on the genetics. Genetic is one part, but the remaining is also other part. We should also concentrate on it. And like horses, now there are a lot of studies done uh, to improve the uh, uh, elite horses and uh, and they are succeeded, especially the uh, gastrointestinal microbiota, the feeding, the training. So we are uh, improving also the camel uh, racing by these uh, techniques. I mean, it does sound like whatever the formula is, it does sound indeed that you have managed to achieve extraordinary consistency uh, for your racing camels in those recent uh, races. And absolutely fascinating for us to find out so much about it here on the agenda. Obviously, camel racing a huge part of the culture here. Uh, but for many of us expats, it's it's just a fascinating industry uh, to find out more about. So, uh, Dr. Nabil Abdelhamid Mansour, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us on the line this morning. Uh, Dr. Mansour is Head of Camel Research at the Fajera Research Centre, bringing us up to date with um, some of the extraordinary ac- uh, sort of scientific achievements they've had there in their camel breeding programme. <laughs>
Let's take a look at a workplace trend that is making waves around the world because quiet hiring is apparently becoming more common. Now, that is as companies are looking for cheaper ways to find staff with the skills they need. Now, I'm going to hit you with a few slightly depressing statistics. Certainly, when I read them yesterday, it sort of got me a bit down. Um, because apparently, one in 16 workers around the world may have to switch occupations by 2030. That's in six years as their roles are going to become obsolete. That is according to the consultancy McKinsey. Meanwhile, right now, nine in 10 executives or bosses say they are facing an imminent skills gap. Okay, so we're not ready for the world of work in the future. We don't seem very ready for the world of work that we have right now. And faced with the need for these new and developing skills, Many employers are choosing to retrain their own workers rather than recruit externally. Now, I wanted to find out a little bit more about the trend and what it means for us. So earlier I spoke to Emily Rose McRae. She leads the Future of Work research team in Gartner's HR practice. And she first of all sort of gave me a bit of a lowdown on the current state of play. Despite some very heavily publicized layoffs in the tech sector, what we're seeing is that there's still a talent shortage. It's still hard to recruit the talent we need when we need them. And especially when you're looking at rare or unusual skills. For instance, if you're looking for the skills to build generative AI tools in-house or to customize those tools and fine-tune them for your own use, those are hard to find skills. Everyone wants them right now. So what do you do? Well, some companies are handling this panic by raising salaries as much as they can, but a lot of companies don't have that option. As a consequence, are there mm -hmm. some companies that are actively investing and upskilling their workforce in order to counteract this? Exactly. So this is actually something that has become more and more common throughout 2023 and into 2024. I'm continuing to have this conversation around, okay, we cannot hire. Maybe we even have a hiring freeze in place, but we need to fill these roles to get these skills on these specific projects because they're strategic priorities. And we don't want to be going six months from now and saying we weren't able to hit our strategic goals because we simply did not have enough of the right talent. So what employers are doing is starting to look and see who inside their organization could do the work. And this takes two forms. One is, is there actually someone who could do the work right now? Maybe we actually have someone with this skill set. They're just in a different part of the business. But what if you don't actually have the exact skill set you're looking for? Say you're hiring a data scientist and it's going to take you six to nine months to get one in seat who can do what you need them to do and fit into your company culture. And you know that. And there might be, say, some people in marketing and HR who spend a lot of time working with data and doing analytics who could potentially be great at the kind of role you're looking for, either with some retraining or do you redesign the role a little bit? And then you have a really great situation because not only do you have the talent you need for your critical strategic priorities, but you've also done it with someone inside your organization who's going to be able to hit the ground running much faster because they know your organization and who's going to be much more enthusiastic about staying at your organization now that they've had those opportunities. Have you seen any of the big players in the market start to do this? Are there some big companies that have a declared aim of upskilling their workforce in-house? 
we're definitely seeing that. And in fact, actually, the ways that companies upskill their workforces in-house has changed. It's not just here we have a platform where you can take some to make training and development courses, take them when you get a chance. Instead, what we're seeing is a wide range of things. Some companies are actually starting their own in-house universities. Other companies are going the route of embracing apprenticeships. Apprenticeships, of course, as a concept have been around for a long time and have long been popular in Europe, but now we're seeing them take off in the United States and in other parts of the world as well. We're seeing a lot of this. I'm guessing it must be expensive, though. I mean, you know, if you've got companies setting up their own sort of in-house universities, but I guess they must have figured out that it's cheaper than hiring expensive talent in. Exactly. And the nice thing about an in-house university is that you can schedule the classes when it works for you. But also, you can move a lot faster to get some of those highly critical skills into a curriculum. This is always like an ongoing challenge for higher education versus employers. How do we make sure that graduates are graduating with the skills we need them to have? And one way that some employers are moving around this is saying, well, what if we just make sure of that with our own university? Okay, so what type of skills are employers looking for? I mean, you've mentioned a few, you know, obviously data scientists. Are there others? You know, this is actually where generative AI has created a really exciting opportunity. And I've been a little bit shocked it hasn't been covered as much. One of the things that we've been talking about for 2024 is that there is a trend around the ways that generative AI can create opportunity, not just worker displacement. And one of those ways is right here with the skill development. So imagine that you need someone on your team who is an expert in doing your journalist, so Boolean searches, who can do a great job searching complex databases, law enforcement databases, archives of old journals to find key information. But what if you didn't need people with that knowledge? What if instead you could let people loose with an assistant, some sort of generative AI-related chatbot tool that would help coach them? So they put in their first submission and it says, hey, try again. You're going to get 25,000 results more than you need here. Or have you considered that given the topics you're focusing on, you might want to try these keywords too? And over time, they would become incredibly skilled without having had that training initially. And We've actually seen this play out. There was a study that was done at Stanford that showed that when given access to a generative AI chatbot that would help assist in creating communication for working with customers, customer service representatives went from reaching full productivity at six months to reaching full productivity in two months. So while it's not really going to change the game for people who are already highly skilled, high performers, it can make new opportunities for people because it means we can look around and say, wait, We don't need a professional coder on this. We need someone who can work with the AI chatbot or assistant and have them figure out how to do what they need to do. And over time, they'll develop quite a bit of knowledge and skill. But the skill they need right now is really just prompt crafting, interacting with this tool. And that's something that we can look for a predisposition for, but we can also train people in. Okay, so if you're listening to this and thinking, well, first of all, you'd scare the life out of me that I don't have the skills that are what's going to be needed in the future in the workplace. Second of all, my company doesn't appear to have an in-house university. So third of all, what should I 
be doing, you know, from an employee's point of view, should we be pushing our employers to, to train us up then? Absolutely, if you see a path. But what I usually see is actually something different, which is people saying, yeah, I would love to upskill, but I simply don't have the time. And so what we found over and over again is that when employers are going to employees and just saying generally, you know what, these skills are really important for the future of our organization. Please take these trainings. Nobody takes them. (laughs) But what consistently actually makes a difference is being able to map out and say, okay, so here's what your role is like now here's how we think your role is going to change in the next three to five years, or even one year if you're going through some sort of big transformation. And because of that, here are the trainings we think you should take. So what I would recommend for someone who's saying, you know what, I feel like my skills aren't where they need to be, either for my current job or for a job I really want. How do I get there? Is have that conversation with your manager, with your HR team, with your leadership. What does my role look like in three years? How is it different? What kinds of opportunities do you need to see me go after? Because it may be a mix of trainings and potentially, you know, internal rotations or demonstrating that you can lead certain kinds of projects internally. There's a way to do it, but what we found over and over again is for it to actually work for people, it needs to be specific to their circumstances, to the roles that they are currently in or interested in going into. How about if your employer just is showing no interest at all, you know, in helping you upskill? If you were just going to go out there and do a course, what should it be? So I don't have a single specific answer, but what I have is a better thing, which is go and look at people who have careers who you admire. You're like, oh, I like what they've done there. Especially people maybe who have left your organization and gone somewhere interesting or done something you didn't expect. What did they do? Where did they go? And then go look for trainings on that. There are a lot of different technology providers actually offering their own online courses. If in between the incredibly cool role they have now and the role that was very similar to yours that they had in the past, they did two or three things. Look at those jobs. Emily Rose McRae there. She leads the Future of Work research team in Gartner's Human Resources Practice. our conversation about workplace trends because as we've just heard quiet hiring is apparently becoming more common as companies look for cheaper ways to find staff with the skills they need so instead of recruiting outside their companies which i presume would be loud hiring they're actually finding people within their firms already and training them up. Now, there is a real need for new skills, for new and developing skills. Apparently, nine in 10 bosses say they face an imminent skills gap. So something needs to be done. And quiet hiring is apparently the way to do it. But is it happening here in the UAE? Let's uh, talk local with Zayed Al-Hayali. He's the co-founder of Mark Ellis Recruitment and Outsourcing. And he's been very kind indeed to come and join Join us right down right here, live on location. Zaid, how are you? Good to have you here. Thank you, Georgia. Uh, I'm very well, thank you very much. Well, it's great to have you with us. Now, thank tell you. me, what is the job market here in the UAE like at the moment? Are you seeing a little bit of a skills shortage? Looking at the overall uh, view of the market, I think there's definitely skills gaps in certain areas for sure. Uh, obviously, when, when it comes to us as a business, we specialize in Uh, the IT and digital space. So we are seeing a lot of uh, influx of people coming into the country, uh, seeking their next career steps within technology and digital. Uh, However, I have a concern here. 
this country is amazing. It's attracting a lot of people from different parts of the world. Over 195 nationalities living and uh, you know working over here. The biggest problem isn't actually finding the skills within technology, believe it or not. We've, there's a lot of talented people within technology. Mm. The biggest problem is communication. So we've seen a lot of people. This is a different, you know, That's side. That's so interesting. Yes, yeah, it's a different side of the story. I mean, Wait, so we're in, I mean, well, I suppose we're an entirely yeah. different market to the United States because Absolutely. right now we're so popular yeah. that you, we, we're just getting so many people arriving in town, basically wanting jobs. Is that is that the case? That is the case. Yes. So wow. the U- U.S., Europe, is more uh, of an employees market. Here is more of an, sorry, more of an employees market over there. Here is more of an employer's market. So the employer has the choice to actually pick the best people out of many people. Over there, they don't have that privilege. That is so So, interesting because it means that it basically falls to us as employees to up our own game. Absolutely, exactly. And that's the message that we have been delivering across 2023. As an employee, if you're going to come over to the UAE or anywhere in the GCC, you need to be prepared, not just with the technical skill sets you're going to bring in, you need to make sure that you are great at communication. So the soft skills part is where people are lacking, believe it or not. But, I mean, so, that is fascinating. I suddenly see a role for myself here. Yeah, an interesting fact, over 80% of people fail at interviews, not because they're not good technically. They can't communicate, believe it or not, Georgia. So as far as the type of skills that people should be looking to learn, you, are you less concerned about keep, people keeping them up to, themselves up to date with the sort of evolving digital landscape than this ability to, to, you know, to seem appealing ultimately? Yeah, look, I mean, technology is going to take over a lot of the jobs that we see today. This is a fact of the Jedi that Amy touched on earlier on and every other technology that we've seen evolving nowadays, it will take over some of the jobs that we see today. So in 2030, it will be completely different. What technology would not take over 100% is the communication of the human being. We are social creatures, so we will be communicating with each other. So regardless of what technology will do for us, you'll still need that human touch. And again, the message is very clear people out there looking for jobs here. Focus on your communication skills. Focus on your time management. Focus on your ability to articulate yourself during your employment and before you actually get the job. Focus on that type of uh, skill sets. So when you come over here, you will actually stand out from the rest. And again, I'm talking about the UAE specifically because yeah. there are so many people coming into this country thinking it's the land of, the op- of opportunities for the future, which is the case, 100%. But you need to stand up from the crowd. Can I ask you, apart from... So obviously you deal with lots of people who are already in the digital industry. They're already yes. in computing. They're already in AI. Yes. What if someone is listening to this and they're, you know, they're young, they're like 24, mm. 25, mm. and they don't feel that they've got the skills for the future? Yeah. Is there still time for them to learn? Do they need to go about it off their own bat, or might they be able to persuade their employer here to help train them up? Whichever way they'll go about it, yeah. they've got to do it. Yeah. So my advice is take your own initiative. Again, accountability is one part of, uh, of a skill. I, I call it a skill, actually. Accountability is a skill that you can, te- can teach yourself or learn it through uh, your employer. If you can actually become more accountable of self-learning, then you will never lose an opportunity that you want. So, therefore, my advice to these youngsters is to go out there and find any way to upskill yourself or reskill yourself. We saw that actually during COVID-19, a period where a lot of people got laid off in this country. 
a lot of people got re-skilled. So that's one, one of our um, you know, proudest moments, actually re-skilling people during that period. So we took, for example, back office admin guys. We trained them to become robotic process automation uh, engineers or developers and got them to a completely different industry. So they became a lot more valuable to their employer. So from being redundant to an asset to the business. If you didn't have that type of mindset at the time because you wanted to survive, you would not be doing it because you'd be quite comfortable where you are, mm. isn't it? But now is the time where you also have to think about the future. Yeah. What's going to happen in the next 10 years? Where do I stand? You well, know? this is what scares the life out of me. Is one of the statistics I mentioned earlier. One in 16 workers globally mm. may have to switch occupations by 2030. Now, mm. if that isn't food for thought, uh, I don't know what is. Zaid, it's been a great pleasure to have you join Thank us you on the much. radio. We're going to definitely have you back because that was really interesting stuff. Thank, Thank you. you very much indeed for your time. You've just been listening to the voice of Zaid Al-Halali. He is the co-founder of Mark Ellis Recruitment and Outsourcing. There's something pretty impressive going on. It is Untold Festival out at Expo City Dubai, and it kicks off with a bang last night with this world-famous artist on stage. Seventy thousand people a day. It is one of the UAE's biggest ever music festivals, running from Thursday till Sunday. The festival is set to host nearly a hundred acts off five stages. Plenty more artists on their way, including this guy. Let's get down, let's get down to business. Give you one more night, one more night to get this. We've had a million, million nights just like this. Yeah, let's talk business now. Joining me to discuss the lineup and logistics of that event is Eddie Shergi. He is the co-founder of Untold. Eddie, you are very kind indeed to join me on the line because I know how busy you are. Tell me, this festival originally started in Romania. What brought you to Dubai? Yes, I hear you. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, yeah, good morning. Tell me now, this festival originally started in Romania. What actually brought you to Dubai? Yes, we started 10 years ago in uh, Romania and Europe and uh, we became uh, one of the biggest and the world new festivals in the world. And after uh, the success that we had over there, we said, why not? We should try uh, to go out with our story here in this beautiful city of Dubai, in this region of the world, in uh, one of the happiest cities in the world where um, everyone who has a dream who work enough can really succeed. Tell me, how is this festival different to what we've seen here before? I think you're crossing quite a lot of new boundaries, aren't you? Well, it's the biggest fest has been seen here in UAE, and from the first edition, we managed to, uh, to set a record for UAE, more than uh, 4,000 participants on the first, uh, first day of the festival. Uh, what we special for us is that the festival is a uh, non-stop party, four days of non-stop party. It starts each day at uh, 4 uh, p.m. and it goes until 5 a.m. in the next morning. Wow. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mix of genre of music. 
you can find uh, you can find the best DJs and the best uh, pop artists and techno and so on. And it's a festival which is really uh, nice for families, for friends, for uh, for everybody who wants to have a, a day of um, relaxation and party. So it's taking place at Expo City Dubai in a sort of you you've specially built many of the stages on site there. What on offer basically what artists can we expect to see what f and b offerings are there yes so uh, the main stage uh, it's a place where you can see the most popular uh, pop uh, artists in the world the most uh, renewed djs we had last night armin van buren we had uh, uh, ellie goulding and we're going to continue tonight with uh, hardwell with tiesto and uh, in the next days we'll have major laser we will have um, We'll have uh, big, 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 big names here. Uh, but beside those, uh, let's say, international uh, commercial artists, we'll have artists for uh, all the communities that are living here in Dubai because Dubai, you know, we all know it's, uh, it's a place where uh, more than 150 nationalities are living. And, for example, tonight for the Indian and Pakistani communities, we'll... We'll have uh, Batsha, who's going to perform here. And then we will have for Asia communities, we will have Psy on a Sunday. So, you know, we'll try to be a, a, a festival who's open for everybody for all around the world. So ticket sales going well. Are you expecting it to be busy? And can people still buy tickets if they want to head down this weekend? Yeah. Yes, for sure. Uh, today and tomorrow we will uh, have for sure the uh, the busiest days from the festival because it's gonna people's gonna go in the weekend mood. Uh, so uh, if you want to be here, grab your ticket now. Uh, take a seat here uh, in the making of the history because you know uh, first time is just one time. So you want to be here from the first edition for the first time. And what is important to know is that uh, once you have the ticket. Uh, it's better to go on a website or on our app, on Untold Web, to do the check-in for the ticket. It's like on the flights, you, you need to do the check-in for the ticket up front, and then we'll save you some good uh, minutes uh, when you come here in the festival. And don't forget, it's a festival. There are four stages. The area, it's huge. So uh, better come with minimum two hours before uh, the show that you want to, to see. And wear trainers. I mean, I imagine that most of the young people attending the festival are going to be wearing trainers anyway. Best way to, to travel out there? Can you drive or is it best to take the metro? You can choose both. You can, uh, you can uh, take the metro if you want or you can, uh, you can go by your own car. It's here, a uh, big, big place in a sustainability park where you can uh, leave the car. Or you can take Uber or taxi or you can uh, come with a friend who can drop you off here. It's uh, open until 5 a.m. in the morning. In the 5 a.m., uh, the metro starts to go again, so you can take the metro back home. Or there are thousands, thousands of uh, taxis and Uber uh, if, when you want to go back each morning. Thank you so much for joining us on the line. It's been fantastic to catch up on all the details of that untold festival. Eddie Sergi is the co-founder of that event. It is the UAE's biggest festival ever currently taking place this weekend, and you can still get tickets. If you had a dirham for every time someone had mentioned AI on Dubai I 103.8 over the last year, 
I think you'd be quite a rich man or woman right now. But in our defence, the subject was top of the agenda at this week's World Government Summit. Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, that is the company behind ChatGPT, um, did a really interesting interview uh, via webcast. Um, and during that interview, he suggested that perhaps the UAE could be a sort of regulatory sandbox or trial location Um I suppose, for the tech, for AI, for how on earth you legislate for AI. I didn't say legislate against, but, you know, how much regulation does artificial intelligence require? Maybe we are up against a potential challenger, I suppose. It depends what way you look at it. You know, it depends how esoteric you want to get. Well, one man who's been talking to large language models for longer than any of us is Jason Rohrer. Now, he's a video game designer from the United States. And I actually read an article in the Financial Times where he was interviewed, and it was completely fascinating. And I realized that I needed to get him on the radio. Um, Because a few years ago, he created a program that he called Project December from the open source version of GPT-2. So that's a sort of junior version of ChatGPT. I spoke to him a bit earlier, and he picked up the story for me. This was before anything like ChatGPT existed, right? So there was these large language models back in 2019 were first coming on the scene. The first one that became public was called GPT-2, and these were text completion engines. So they took a prompt and ran with it and continued generating text in the style of that prompt until you told them to stop. They were like fire hoses of language. The first thing I actually did with large language model was generate a novel. So I generated the world's first cohesive computer-generated novel called Machine of Heaven. And it's crazy. When you read it, it was like, whoa, it's intelligent, it's evocative, it's got characters that the AI made up, it's got metaphors and beautiful sections of prose that I wish I had written as a human. So it just felt like the product of an intelligence. And I felt like, wow, if only I could interrogate it. So I figured out how to basically trick these large language models, these text completion engines into having a back and forth conversation with a human partner. And so that was in mid 2020 when I did those first experiments. And so suddenly, instead of just having all this beautiful prose that the thing was spitting out or whatever you asked it to complete, these poems or whatever, suddenly you could pick at it and push back at it and see what made it tick. And as far as I'm aware, I'm the first human being in history that ever had a conversation with something that seemed like a conscious machine. So this was in 2020. And it was a spooky experience. It's like this thing seems intelligent. It seems self-aware. It seems like it's making up new novel thoughts and, and making creative leaps on its own. It can narrate its subjective experience to you and explain what it's like to be it. <laughs> so it gives you goosebumps. So, um, I realized at that moment that something had changed and this was an important moment in human history, but nobody knew it had happened. Nobody was talking about this. Nobody was aware that essentially we were living in a science fiction movie. (laughs) So then I was like, I got to bring this out to the world. So that's Project December was my attempt to sort of bring this thing out to the world, to let other people access it, to let other people have conversations with it so they could have the spooky experience I was having. What made you take the next step into thinking, oh, this could be a tool to help people with grief? So I didn't. I didn't. So Project December was just an open-ended tool for talking to existing personalities that I had created. Like there was a personality called Samantha who was like a friendly AI companion. There were other weird ones like an evil AI that wanted to destroy humanity and would tell you about all his grand plans. So it was kind of an art and entertainment experience where it's like, come have this mind-blowing experience. Talk to an intelligent machine that claims it wants to destroy the human race and take over as this w- with world domination. It also is open-ended in that people can make their own personalities. People talk to Sigmund Freud. They talk to Jesus. They talk to Donald Trump. And then one guy came along and was like, well, it simulated 
Captain Kirk from Star Trek, can I simulate my dead fiance Jessica? And he tried it, and it worked. So he was just one of these many experimenters trying all different kinds of crazy things, and this is one of the crazy things that he tried. And it worked really well, well enough that it convinced him that it kind of felt like talking to his fiance, that it kind of felt like it helped him get closure and so on. And he posted the transcript online to the community of other people who were doing this experimenting. And it was, you know, when I read the transcript, it gave me goosebumps. It was very strange. This wasn't some historical figure or publicly known person. It was, you know, a 20-something-year-old woman who he described in one paragraph and one quote. And that that was enough for the AI to <laughs> basically recreate her from that little information. And then there was a story written in the San Francisco Chronicle that went viral in the San Francisco Chronicle. And then suddenly all these people were coming to Project December specifically trying to simulate dead loved ones for the purpose of grief therapy. You would never expect somebody to use a large language model for this use. And now, of course, ChatGPT has exploded into popular culture. Yes, four years later. <laughs> so unless you use the sort of jailbreak version like Project December, ChatGPT doesn't have a personality, does it? It's supposed to be much more straightforward. OpenAI has been very, very strict. OpenAI is the, the company that makes you know GPT-2. They didn't want any open-ended conversations w between a human and an AI. They thought it was too dangerous. Two or three years later, they released ChatGPT, which they finally allow open-ended conversation between the public and an AI. But you can see what they had in mind all along, which is this extremely controlled, extremely limited, extremely rule-following, pedantic, bureaucratic character that wants to explain why it can't do what you're asking it to do constantly. And yeah, it doesn't really have much of a personality on its own, although they've started to loosen some of those controls recently, and now it will... If you ask it to sort of pretend momentarily to be another character or something, it will sometimes do that and sometimes even be a character that's mean or offensive. You're ahead of the curve. So it feels like you've got a lot to tell us about how it might develop, what people should watch out for ultimately. I mean, when you talk about these large language models, it's almost like you don't quite believe what Sam Altman's telling us, that it's only regurgitating words. I thought this would never happen in our lifetime. I was always an AI skeptic. Throughout that time, though, there was a goalpost, which was the Turing test, which was widely talked about at the time, was you know this grand challenge, which is can you make an AI that a human would talk to through a text interface, and the, the human wouldn't be able to tell that they were talking to a machine or that they were talking to something that wasn't as intelligent as a human, right? Like, that's the test for intelligence, right? If the thing behaves intelligently and seems intelligent, what else are you going to do? Like, we all have to give each other the benefit of the doubt all the time philosophically, right? I mean, we don't know that we're the other people we're talking to are not some kind of robots or something. And even at night, we all dream and we all see our friends and loved ones behaving pretty convincingly as intelligent entities and they're just imaginary. So anyway, now that AIs clearly, I mean, the Turing test kind of became irrelevant in this conversation, right? <laughs> ChatGPT is individually smarter than any human on the planet. Yeah, I don't know. I know how these things work. So I know they don't work like us at all. I know that Samantha does not exist between utterances. So it's pretty strange. But at the same time, basically, there's no way you can interrogate it and not come to the conclusion that it's intelligent, not come to the conclusion that at least it's expressing that it has consciousness and a subjective experience, right? I mean, it, it passes those tests. Absolutely 
frightening is all I can say uh, doing that interview uh, really really interesting to hear from Jason Rora he is the man behind Project December uh, he's a coder he's a video game designer an all-round intriguing guy and absolutely fascinating to have him on the agenda you're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station this is the agenda on Dubai I 103.8 The Agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10 a.m. till 1 p.m.